Good morning. Our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to the end of that chapter. Be careful then how you live. Do not be unwise as as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. Do not get drunk on wine, it leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Not that a husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, as of the of Christ is the head of the church, his body for which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself to up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. Be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his, of his body. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and be reunited to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, for I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife should always respect her husband. Okay, well, we are going to jump straight into things this morning. Like I said, this is part two of the one sermon going over two Sundays. So if you want to stand up and stretch, this is the time. Just warning you. No. So last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3 and saw what we could uh, from the way that God has made Adam and Eve both in the image of God as co-rulers and co-representatives in his world. But we also started to see there were some hints maybe about Adam having a primacy in his leadership there in that relationship. And then we traced some stuff through the Old and the New Testament. Uh, But this week we're going to be looking specifically at the New Testament and what it says to us about church marriage, and beyond briefly, as far as men and women and what the scriptures say to us. Now, we're not going to have time to cover everything. Uh, that would have been an even longer sermon. Uh, but we are, I think, going to cover the really big ideas that we need to, uh, to make sense of some of those other passages that we see there in scripture as well. So, what we're going to look at Uh, is going to be specifically pertaining to men and women, but I think it has to sit within this framework that we get here from Galatians chapter 3 first. Let me read that to you. Paul writes here to the church in Galatia saying, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. All meaning everyone. Okay, All those who believe in Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In salvation, in Christ, 
the primary marker of our identity is not our gender, it's not our nationality, it's not anything except from the fact that we are in Him and all of those heavenly blessings are ours, both men and women. And that's the framework that all of this has to sit in. Anything that we say that goes against this idea is going against Scripture itself. And so as we start to look at any distinctions that we see here between men and women, that has to sit within the framework of every spiritual in the heavenly realms, every, sorry, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is something that's given to both men and women the same, and there's no distinction in that gifting between us. Alright, so that's sort of the, that's the framework we have to start with. And I have to say that, and even though we're not spending too much time on it, that really is the big picture we need to keep in mind as we work our way through this. But these other passages are a little tricky at times, so we need to give them uh, a little bit more space. So let's jump into this. Uh, in 1 Timothy, famous passage, you knew we were going to have to look at it today. It's something where Paul is writing to one of his disciples, Timothy, who is leading the church at Ephesus. And that's important because as we read the New Testament, uh, these weren't just books or, or letters written for no reason. They were written in particular circumstances and particular places and particular times. And we need to keep that in mind as we read it. So this is what Paul says, picking up from chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now, my hunch is, is that Paul is mentioning some of these things because they were issues in Ephesus, and this kind of sets the bar pretty low as far as what the situation might have looked like. If you have to remind people to pray without fighting, maybe things are a little rough. Okay? So he says that to men, the men, and then he says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Maybe the dudes are fighting, maybe the lady is a little too concerned about their appearance, but you know some things aren't great when they're getting together. And then he goes on, specifically here, thinking about the church. He says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Right, pretty confronting, right? We need, to, we need to unpack this, we need to work through it slowly. And I just want to say again that Paul is writing to a particular situation here, and that plays a part of it. And it's really good for us to remember that the New Testament's not a rule book. Right? It's, Paul is not the author of the new law for Christians, but this is God's word to us. And so we have to take the wisdom that is offered here seriously and wrestle with what it means for us today. So, verse 11. He's saying, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, when you think about it, learning in quietness and submitting to the person teaching you is how we all should learn. So I think that the fact that he directs this particularly towards women here is, again, something that was occurring in his mind because of the particular situation that he was aware of in Ephesus. Maybe the guys were fighting, maybe the ladies were a little too worried about how they looked, and maybe some of the ladies were being disruptive during the church meetings, and so he's specifically addressing them in this context. But it's not to say that I don't don't think that women learning in quietness uh, and full submission is a universal principle, but for guys they learn loudly and rebelliously. That doesn't really makes sense, I think. So I think that it sounds very general, but I think it's still very pointed towards the situation that he's speaking to here. But then he goes on. He says, 
uh, he's got two things that Paul does not permit a woman to do. The first one is, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Alright? Now I think that from the context here, we can see that when he's talking about he doesn't permit a woman to teach, he means in the formal mixed gatherings of the church. Okay, because we see in other passages that Paul writes in his letters that he encourages women to teach. So we see him affirming Timothy's parents, uh, so his grandmother and his mother for teaching him the faith. We see him uh, exhorting women, uh, older women to teach younger women. And we even see on at least one, maybe two examples of where we have Paul affirming and uh, being pleased with a woman teaching a man in, in sort of specific circumstances. So I don't think that this is a blanket ban on women teaching, and I don't think it's even a blanket ban on women teaching uh, men in all situations, but even in the context here in Timothy, he seems to be saying that he doesn't permit women to teach in that formal, mixed church gathering. Okay, And then the second thing that he says he doesn't permit is for women to assume authority over a man. Now, this word in the Greek that gets translated as assume authority, it's an interesting one. It only appears once in all of the New Testament, and there's really only, uh, in the time period in which it was written, a few examples of it being used for us to look at and really try and understand the meaning. And I've done a lot of work on this, uh, and where I've landed is that I think that this word has a slightly negative aspect to it. It's not the regular word for authority, I think there's something to do here with, with this is a seizing of authority or doing authority improperly. That's kind of the idea that's going along here. And that's why Paul uses this specific word. So again, it's not a blanket ban on women having authority in the church at all. There's all sorts of stuff that Paul entrusts women to do where they would need a certain degree of authority. But there's a sphere of activity here where he's saying he doesn't permit women to have authority in this. And I think that the way that this passage immediately then goes on to talk about men as being elders in the church is at the very least highly suggested that the authority that Paul is talking about here that he doesn't allow women to have is the authority of the eldership. And I think that's reinforced by the fact that when Paul goes on uh, in the next few verses to talk about the qualifications for elders or overseers in this passage specifically, he seems to assume that it's going to be men who are going to be elders. He says, husband of but one wife, which you know is phrasing it in such a way uh, where, where it seems to be, he's presuming it's going to be a husband that's the elder, not a wife necessarily. There's some evidence a little bit later on that maybe he draws a distinction between deacons and deaconesses. It's not totally clear, but, but it seems quite plausible. So it seems like his assumption is, is that men are going to be elders, and given he's just said, I don't permit women to assume authority, to improperly take authority, that he's talking about the sphere of eldership. Okay? So I don't permit a woman to teach in mixed church formal gatherings, and I don't allow women to assume authority of eldership, and that's, I think, what he's getting at. But why? Why does Paul, who elsewhere affirms women in ministry in all sorts of different ways, calls them his co-workers, affirms uh, the many things that they've done for the gospel, why is it that this same Paul, who's affirmed them elsewhere in the ministry that they're doing, seemingly putting a a limit on what he allows them to do here in this passage? Well, he gives two reasons. Okay. The first one is that for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And the second was that 
Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman, a reference to Adam and Eve in the garden, who was deceived and became a sinner. Now at first glance, especially that second reason, it can look like Paul is saying that women are more easily deceived, and so that's why I don't allow them to have this authority or teach in this way. But that's verifiably not true. We, we, I mean, you, you can look at imperial, uh, empirical evidence uh, that shows that women are not more likely to be deceived than men. In fact, if anything, it sort of leans the other way. Sorry, guys. Uh, there, there's nothing in that, that that we know from experience that would suggest that that's what Paul's saying here. So, so what is he saying if it's not that? Well, I think what he's doing is he's giving a positive reason for why he himself allows men to be in the eldership and not women, and a negative reason for this. Okay, so I think it, it, it can be summed up like this. Paul is saying he doesn't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man because, positively, this is the positive side, Adam has a leadership primacy in Adam and Eve's relationship in the garden. Adam was created first. There's something about Adam being created first that is the reason for Adam ha- still having a primacy in this sphere of authority that Paul is talking about here. And we saw hints of it last week when we looked at Genesis and Adam naming Eve, that there seems to be a sense in which he had some leadership responsibility beyond hers in that relationship, and that Paul is affirming that here. Adam was created first, and that says something about the order between the two of them, and there's a primacy there for Adam. But then negatively, and I've got to admit, this is a little bit, I'm a little bit idiosyncratic on this, you won't necessarily find this in, in a bunch of commentaries, but, it, but I will defend my, my case if need be later on. Uh, negatively, I think Paul is affirming that Adam ruling over Eve is a consequence of the fall. Adam was deceived and her curse was for Adam to rule. And Paul is affirming that even though Christ has come, this hasn't actually changed. That it still remains that Adam rules over Eve in some sense. So positively he's saying it's good and right for the man to be teaching these spheres and for him to have the authority of eldership because there's a primacy of leadership in the Adam and Eve relationship. We've seen that in Genesis. But negatively, there's still a consequence of the curse in that Eve was the one who was deceived and this is the result of that for her. Now, I think there are two objections that we might uh, raise from this, just on a logical ground. It's not so much exegesis, that's a different thing. So some people might object and say, you're saying that male leadership is a bad thing. But that's, that's not what I'm saying. There's a positive reason here that Paul gives for why it should be this way, and that, that is that God created Adam first, and there's a primacy there to what he's doing. It's not a bad thing in and of itself, even if there is a negative side to it. And the second objection would be, well, it's not fair that women can't lead now because of Eve's sin. That was thousands of years ago. How could that possibly be the case now, especially for those who have been redeemed in Christ, especially now that we've been set free from sin and death? How can it be that we would still be under that? And to which I'd say, well, we still, all people, experience the the consequences of the fall now, even Christians. The curse upon Adam, that his toil would be full of pain and sweat, still remains for all of us. It's something that we still live with, the consequences of the fall. And even though we've been set free personally, individually, from the the curse of sin and death with regards to our salvation, we still live in a world where the consequences of the fall continues. And given that, in Genesis 3 there, it says really clearly that the consequence for Eve and her 
sin is that her husband would rule over her, it would seem to me to make sense that even in this redeemed community that we have here in church, that some consequences would continue. And I think that Paul is affirming that that is the case. Now, before I go any further with that, okay, I want to say something really specific on that, okay? As we look at church history, I think it's fair to say that we have a patriarchy problem. And I mean patriarchy in a very particular way that I've defined here from the Oxford English Dictionary, okay? It says here, uh, this is one of the definitions of patriarchy. It's a system of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. I don't think this is what Paul is intending to lay down here. To exclude women okay, from all sorts of power in church. That even though he's limiting a certain sphere of activity to men for the reasons that he's outlined, this should not be taken as permission to put women down, to subject them, to treat them as second-class citizens. And I say this to you knowing that in this room, there are women who have experienced that very thing. That you've been mistreated by systems which were predominantly male in power. And I just want to say, you were wronged in that. This is not permission to exclude women, to silence women. And the fact that it's been used by that is reflective of the fact that sin still has an effect and consequence in this world. But I don't think that this is in any way an endorsement of that or something that we should allow to continue. It's it's wrong. And I think that's why Paul is aware of the danger of placing people in authority, and that's why he sets such a high standard as you look at chapter 3 for ethical conduct for elders. But again, men have failed at this time and time and time again, and men need to own this and accept this responsibility because if we're going to receive the privilege of these leadership roles in church, then with that comes the responsibility to do it well and to keep empowering the women amongst us. Now, as a church, uh, I actually think that we've been doing this positively in lots of ways for a while, but we haven't talked about it enough. And the problem is, when you, when you have things that you believe in but you don't talk about it, then lots of other unwritten rules can actually come up. And so I just want to run through a list of a few things that you may have made assumptions about so that you can see just some of the things that we're doing to actually promote women in leadership and to empower them in our church community. So, for example... The last uh, two and a bit years, we've had our ministry team leaders joining the elders at our every second session meeting, and most of them are women. And so that's been a great way that we've started to involve women in some of the decision-making processes. We, we hear reports from them about what's happening in the different ministries. We've got a chance to talk about them, to get some synergy between different ministries. It's been a really positive thing as we've also worked through uh, books on gospel ministry to equip one another. That's been really positive. There's still more that we can do, but it's been a really positive step where we've sought to you know, create spaces where women are going to be more involved in the leadership of the church. Similarly, we've been really deliberate about trying to consult with women as key stakeholders in the church that before we make a decision, especially those that might have an impact on the whole community or women in particular, talking to women about these decisions and not just going ahead and making them. Okay, uh, I, I spoke to a lot of women and sent them copies of the scripts for this sermon uh, before I came up here today to talk to you guys so that I could seek to learn and gain understanding and understand where people are coming from before I spoke to you about it. 
We've had Ruth Myers uh, writing growth group material uh, for the last few semesters now, which has been really positive, and we'd be open to more uh, qualified women to be doing that also. And lastly, Session has recently formally endorsed something with regards to growth groups that's been the policy for a while, but again, we just haven't spoken about it, and that is that we endorse women leading mixed gender growth groups. Now, we've often had this happening, but I think that for lots of people, because they know, uh, you know, that we, that we look at the, the certain way that we read these passages of scripture, they might assume that we wouldn't be okay with that, but we do. We've endorsed it, we've, we've had multiple examples of it over the years, and so we wanted to say that to you guys today specifically so that you know that's where we sit on this stuff. Alright. I'm sure that there's got more questions. I should have mentioned at the start, um, after we get done with the service today, I'm going to be around specifically for some question time. Uh, once we get o- offline, sorry guys, you won't be able to join us for that part, uh, but I will be available to answer questions uh, for the group and I'll let you guys know about that at the end. So that's what I'll say about church for now. All right, what about marriage? What a day, huh? Just all smooth sailing. Here we go. There's passages that speak about this in 1 Peter 3, in Colossians 3, uh, but it's here in Ephesians 5 where Paul sort of says the most about this. And I think it's worth noting that, of course, 1 Peter 3 written by Peter. This is not just a Paul thing. I'm only going to look at the Ephesians passages because I think that this gives us all the basic ideas that are there in those other passages as well. Maybe missing a couple little highlights, but I think it's going to get us where we need to go. So, Ephesians 5.21. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Again, it's challenging language for us in a time where we mark uh, equality as being one of the most the, the greatest values of our culture. But equality doesn't mean that there's no distinction between us. And I think as we work through this passage, we're going to see there is a lot of reciprocity and what you might even want to call equality between this, but we have to work through it slowly and see that even within that, there's still distinction. So first up, we need to understand, what does it mean, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife? Okay, I think there's there's four points that we need to understand uh, in order to get what Paul is saying here. Okay, so first off, uh, we need to know what the word submit means. Alright, and it means pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, It means to subject yourself uh, to something or somebody else, maybe defer, maybe to yield to them. Uh, maybe a little bit stronger to subordinate yourself to them. That's what that word means. Okay, not not a lot of controversy over that one. All right, but I think it's really important to recognise that this verse immediately follows on from verse twenty-one, where it talks about submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. What's really interesting is, is that that Greek the Greek word for submit is actually only in verse twenty-one. 
in verse 22 that they're taking the idea that got started in verse 21 and sort of building on from there. And so whatever we say about this, we need to appreciate that it sits within this idea of Christians and the way that, again, there's this reciprocal nature to the way that we love and care for each other. And it's not just here in this passage. In Romans, honor one another above yourselves. Okay, that reciprocal sort of idea. In Philippians, consider others better than yourselves. That's an instruction given to everyone. And even in a marriage context, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Even in this, when that idea of authority comes up, there's this idea of where it's mutual, back and forth, reciprocal. That's kind of the idea that this sits within. And Look, you can read stuff where people try and deny that that's a thing or it doesn't apply to these verses, but I'm, I honestly can't see how that can be sustained. Nevertheless, there is a specific instruction to wives to submit after that mutual submission idea that gets introduced. Now, I think it's really important to recognize here again, it doesn't say, husbands, subordinate your wives. Number one, good luck. But number two, it's, it's not what it's saying. This is not saying, men, get your wives under control. This is not saying, men, place your wives beneath yourself. What it's saying is, wives, voluntarily, submit yourself to your husbands. It's a call to women to voluntarily offer this to their spouses. And that's really, really important because, again, we would be foolish and naive and honestly sinful to deny the way that these verses have been used to to, to mistreat, to manipulate, to coerce, and to wrong women through history. And I want to say this morning really, really loudly and clearly that husbands, if you have been using these verses, whether openly or in your own mind and heart, to justify manipulating or trying to control your spouse or any other women in your life, then you have wronged them. And it's very possibly abuse. And so, women, if you're in a situation where this is ongoing and you need help, we invite you to come to speak to the elders. If you don't feel comfortable speaking to men about this, initially to speak to a, a growth, one of our female growth group leaders or speak to Alison in the office, and we will put you in touch with whoever we need to to help out. And we are with you in saying that these verses are not permission to mistreat and abuse women in any way. But the point is, this is something that Wives voluntarily offer to their husbands. It's a privilege and a gift to them. Alright, fourth point on this. What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Alright, now first up we have to recognize this is a metaphor. Okay, and metaphors can be tricky. They can have different nuances. Right, so what is the point of this metaphor? What is Paul trying to communicate? Now, for a, for a long time, uh, certainly through most of the 20th century, uh, the big debate was, is this a metaphor designed to convey authority? Or is this a metaphor that's meant to communicate something about source or point of origin, that, that, that sort of idea? So, for example, the authority metaphor we see in Headmaster, 
Okay? That's, that's the authority metaphor there. Uh, source would be something more like a fountainhead. The, the source of water, that sort of idea, springhead, you might have heard those sorts of phrases, okay? But, in the last 30 years or so, uh, there's been a new sort of push based on, I, I think, some really good scholarship, and it's certainly where I've landed, as I've, again, I've looked really hard at this, and that it's actually a metaphor designed to communicate prominence or preeminence as opposed to just authority. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that authority can be part of this or can go with this, but the main point of the metaphor is preeminence, is in like with a headline. Okay, when, when you see the newspaper, the first thing that you see, the thing that jumps out, stands out, most prominent, is the headline. And so I think that this is primarily a metaphor about preeminence or prominence, what, what you sort of notice first when you look at a person, you, you, it's their head that you notice, that's what you remember. It's the same sort of idea going on here. So what, what does that mean? If it's not about authority or source, then, then how does that shape the way that we actually read uh, these verses? Well, let's... Let's have a look here. So, preeminence is something that sort of suggests, uh, like I said, you, you notice it first, or it's the particular thing that stands out, that sort of idea. And I think it sits kind of well with that idea that we've seen in Genesis of this primacy towards Adam's leadership and the fact that Adam was created first. And that oftentimes in the New Testament, when Paul is making big theological points, he talks about Adam being the one who sinned, even though it was, Adam, it was Eve that sinned first, he talks about sin entering the world through Adam. He gives a prominence, a preeminence to Adam at multiple points in Scripture, even though, strictly speaking, historically, he wasn't the first one to act in that sort of idea. And so I think that there's something here where, where that's something that he sees as God given to husbands to fulfill that role of, of being the preeminent, prominent one in that relationship. And what that means is, is that while we don't deny that with this word submit, that the wife submits to her husband, that there's something about subordination or deferring or something to that, it's, it's not as strong a hierarchical idea as what sometimes gets communicated with these verses. It's, it's a partnership between the man and the woman where Adam has been given a primacy to lead, in some setting, in some senses, and for the woman to defer to, yield, to subordinate herself to him. But it's not this hard, God created Adam and beneath him he put Eve. I think that's sometimes the idea that we can get when we read this, this head sort of language. It's a head and body metaphor. If you take away my body, I die. If you take away my head, I die. It's hard to say to a human being which one is more important. <laughs> we need them both. They both have value in that union of husband and wife together. That's why I think it says to Adam that he who loves his wife loves his own body. It's because that's the union that exists there. Right? And that's the other thing that has to go along with this. Even though I do think that Paul is still giving a certain degree of primacy to Adam here, how does he expect Adam to use this privilege of his wife submitting to him? What does he say? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He takes this idea of Adam ruling, a gift given to him by his wife, and very possibly part of the, the, the curse, the consequence for Eve of her sin, and instead of having it operate as this ruling, domineering, hierarchical sort of idea, how does he express it? He recasts it as love. Not just any love, but sacrificial love. 
a willingness to lay down one's life for another. That's what this looks like. Eve, the wife, gifting to her husband submission and him loving her in such a way that he models Christ where he lays down his life for her. And so what what does that actually look like? Well, it's funny. I think people on some level want to say that at the very least what it means is that if the husband and wife after trying to talk things through and all that sort of stuff, if they can't come to an agreement, okay, then the husband gets to decide what we're going to do. You know what the funny thing is? I've spoken to lots of people over the years, talked to lots of people with, with really good, healthy marriages, and I've often asked them the question, can you remember a time when you guys couldn't figure something out and your wife just had to submit and you just had to make the decision? And what I normally get is blank faces, even from people that would affirm this very, very firmly. Okay, So, so going along with this idea, the men have this, this primacy of leadership, all that sort of stuff, maybe even a stronger idea of hierarchy and that sort of thing, but push them on the idea of when have you actually had to put your foot down and say, this is what we're going to do, it, it's almost non-existent. Now, look, that's anecdotal. I know that. I'm sure that you can come up with situations where that has happened. But the point is, is that when you've got one person willing to submit to and yield to the other, and one person willing to lovingly sacrifice themselves and their desires for the other, there's not too many times when you can't figure it out. And so it doesn't typically look like a man commanding a woman, this is how it's going to be. What it normally looks like is two people in partnership together, submitting to one another, but with a definite emphasis on man still having this primacy, loving his wife sacrificially like Jesus loves the church, and the wife being willing to submit and yield in this back and forth give and take within the relationship. That, that's what it looks like. Now I feel like for some, that would be deeply unsatisfactory, but I think for those who have been married for a while, that rings much truer as a picture of healthy marriage than any other diagram I could put up there. And young people, whether you're just married or not yet married, I cannot exhort you strongly enough. If you spend your time in your marriage worrying about, am I being the authority? And on the wife's side, genuinely, like, am I doing a good enough job submitting? That, that gets really destructive. What you need to be focused on is, am I loving my wife? And for the wife to say, am, am I willing to, to, to follow, to work with him, to go with him, to, to, as, as we seek to love each other well? That, that's the healthy focus. I've heard too many stories of, of people tearing themselves apart over this, trying to create these artificial constructs of, well, he's got to make these decisions and this is what it looks like. It can look like a million things. And in the give and take of marriage, I think that's a good thing because we're all different. We've got different giftings. It, it would be foolish of me to sort of stand up here and, and tell you what it's going to look like because it can look like all sorts of different things. These are principles given to us for us to figure it out. But if you do want to come back with a little bit more on that, we will have some question time at the end, like I said. Last up, very briefly. Can we say anything from these passages or in the New Testament in general about what men and women are meant to look like beyond this, like outside of marriage for singles and all that sort of stuff? Well, here's the thing. To answer your question, I'd love to take you to a passage in the New Testament where it says, this is what women do, or this is what a woman should do. 
All the passages where it says, this is what a man is, or this is what a man should do, except those don't exist. We see pictures of what men and women do in the Bible, but we don't see this prescriptive sort of idea of a guy has to be this, a girl has to be that. We take on the role of eldership, the role of husband, the role of women. There's no role, sorry, the role of wives. There's no role of woman. There's no role of man. It's not performative, it's what you are. And that can look, again, like all sorts of different things. And so, if you're single, don't feel this pressure to some way conform to the role of wife. You're not married yet. If you're a guy, certainly don't walk around trying to exercise your authority over women. Again, good luck. But also, that, that's not yours. This isn't something that, that I, I, I don't think we see any real strong argument that this exists outside of church and some leadership applications there and marriage and application there for what it looks like to live our everyday lives. All right. It's a lot of meat for us to chew upon and digest. Uh, like I said, we are going to have some more question time at the end. But, as a final summary, we see, I think, from Genesis through to the New Testament, a primacy of Adam and leadership within his partnership as co-ruler, co-representative of God in this world with Eve. We see this play out in the New Testament where there's an emphasis on, on men in church leadership with regards to eldership in reflecting something of that primacy but also a carry-on from the curse and what that looks like with men having this responsibility in church. And in the marriage relationship, the same thing exists. There's, there's a shape to it, but when you really get down to Paul's commands to what it looks like, it looks a lot like loving one another well, caring for each other. And certainly, for all of us, the concern is not to be a biblical man or a biblical woman, it's to be followers of Christ together. And I'm going to pray that we do that now. Father God, Thank you so much that through Jesus Christ you've made it possible for us to follow you. Man, woman, child, all sorts of nationalities, all sorts of demographic uh, starting points, whatever it may be, Father. In Christ, there is no male nor female, no Jew nor Gentile. Lord, we all are members of your family and co-heirs of your son together. We pray, Father, that as we've looked at these passages today, that we would hold them lightly and well, that we'd be humble in the way that we read scripture, that we would walk with conviction as you've given it to us, and that, Father, we'd pay attention to what this says here about men and women, and that we take that seriously. But, Lord, that we would focus on working well together, lifting one another up, encouraging one another, and at all times lifting your name on high in the way that we conduct ourselves. And we pray, Father, for healthy and strong marriages in our church, We pray, Father, for the elders and for all the women in leadership positions here that we will continue to serve you, to seek to be your people, to love one another well, to care for one another well. Lord, in order that we might see your gospel go forth throughout this world and people grow in their knowledge and maturity in you and that we'd see lives transformed and changed by the power of your spirit. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.